Take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Nahum, please. Nahum is where I want to direct your attention. Nahum, oh, it's so hard to find. Where is it? Those three little chapters tucked into the Old Testament, right at the end of the Old Testament. Um, those three little chapters in what we call the minor prophets, minor because of their length, not because of their message, but those small. If you're in Matthew or Mark, turn left, but don't go too many pages, you'll go by it. And if you're in Isaiah or Jeremiah, turn right, not too many pages, you'll go by it. So Nahum, a professor of mine once referred to the book of Nahum as the white pages of the Bible, the whitest pages in your Bible. It's because you haven't written anything on these pages and they don't have the dirt from your fingers transposed onto the page like in Romans and the Gospels and Ephesians, those books you pour over sometimes. Um, but Nahum here, the white sections of the Bible, let's dirty them up a little bit, shall we? From the book of Nahum, I'm going to read chapter 1. You follow along as I read Nahum chapter 1. A prophecy concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and vents his wrath against his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm and clouds of the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and, it dry, and dries it up. He makes all the rivers run dry. Bashan and Carmel wither and the blossoms of Lebanon fade. The mountains quake before him. and The hills melt away. The earth trembles at his presence, the world and all who live in it. Who can withstand his indignation? Who, who can endure his fierce anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are shattered before him. The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for all who trust in him. But with an overwhelming flood, he will make an end of Nineveh. He will pursue his foes into the realm of darkness. Whatever they plot against the Lord, he will bring to an end. Trouble will not come a second time. It won't need to. They will be entangled among thorns and drunk from their wine and will be consumed like dried stubble. From you, Nineveh, has one come forth who plots evil against the Lord and devises wicked plans. This is what the Lord says. Although they have allies and are numerous, they will be destroyed and pass away. Although I have afflicted you, Judah, I will afflict you no more. Now I will break their yoke from your neck and tear your shackles away. The Lord has given a command concerning you, Nineveh. You will bear no descendants. You will have no descendants to bear your name. I will destroy the images and idols that are in the temple of your gods. I will prepare your grave for you are vile. Look, look there on the mountains, the feet of one who brings good news, who proclaims peace. Celebrate your festivals, Judah, and, and fulfill your vows. No more will the wicked invade you. They will be completely destroyed. 
I want to begin this morning by talking, uh, thinking with you about God and his jealousy. It's an odd place to start, I suppose. Uh, uh, jealousy is not a word we have any positive, many positive associations with. Jealousy is poisonous to healthy relationships. It's bad. It's destructive. It's harmful. And yet, that's where the prophet starts. Did, did you notice that when we started reading in verse 2? It says, the Lord is a jealous God. Your translation might say zealous. Most of them, I imagine, those say jealous. Zealous is a fine word. Um, I think sometimes people prefer the word zealous. Some translators might prefer the word zealous because it doesn't have some of the baggage that the word jealous does. But jealous is, is accurate. It's, it's, it's uh, tight. This is not an isolated incident in the Bible to talk about God's jealousy. In Exodus 34, we're going to return to this passage in a little bit. Exodus 34, 14, look what it says. Do not worship any other God for the Lord, look at this, whose name is jealous, is a jealous God. God's name is jealous. That's how closely it's associated with his character. We used to, I don't know if people still say this, but I remember uh, people would say about a scoundrel, a disreputable scoundrel, they would say, that man's name is mud. God's name is jealous. It's hard to think about the word jealousy and God being jealous in any other way, but negatively, if you're dating someone and they are haranguing you about what you're doing on social media, or if they're pestering you about time you spend talking to someone else, if they're uh, um, anxious and angry and upset, if you're not constantly focusing on them, that is not a sign of a healthy relationship. It can be difficult to think about that. You should, you should talk to somebody you trust about that as you wade through that unhealthy sort of jealousy. But there is, there is a positive form of jealousy. Positive jealousy is the inclination to protect what is supposed to be an exclusive relationship. It's this inclination that someone might have an exclusive relationship to protect, to guard, to preserve that exclusive relationship. It, uh, if you spent time reading the prophets, you'll know that often in the Old Testament there are, and the New, there are comparisons. God, the prophets often compare the relationship between God and his people with a marriage, the relationship between a husband and a wife. And what those two relationships have in common is that they're both exclusive relationships. It is a positive form of jealousy. It is reasonable for a spouse to be distressed if their partner spends four hours a day on Instagram or three hours a day playing Candy Crush. You know, a lot of things to do in life. Maintaining a normal life takes a lot of time and energy. You don't have time to spend three hours a day um, playing Candy Crush and maintain a marriage. It's, it's, it's reasonable to be distressed about that. We can... Raise the bar more poignantly. It's, it's okay to be concerned uh, if your partner spends a lot of time texting coworkers, a coworker, late into the night. No one would fault a wife who is uh, upset that her husband is visiting a strip club. It's a positive form of, of jealousy. Now, it's so, so difficult because... 
Accusations of jealousy are what manipulative adulterers can use, right? They've been called out, and they don't like that they've been called out. So what do they say? You're just being jealous, wrongfully jealous. That that accusation can be made. And so ah, it's such a fragile thing. But God here is a jealous God in that he is expressing this healthy, protective, good inclination to preserve and protect the exclusive relationship that he has with his people. The first half of Nahum, where he starts talking about this jealousy here, is a psalm. It's a hymn of praise. You could take the first eight verses of Nahum out and put them in with the other psalms, and uh, you can make it Psalm 151, and it would make perfect sense. And it's a psalm about God, the divine warrior. He uh, fights. He uses his great strength to enact justice. He punishes the oppressor. He saves the oppressed. Why does he do it? Because he loves justice. That's true. But he also does it to enforce, to enhance, to strengthen the exclusive relationship that he has with his people. You can see that, I think, because he begins with jealousy in verse 2. The Lord is a jealous God. And then in verse 15, this passage ends with God saying to the people of Judah, celebrate your festivals, fulfill your vows, come worship, come and worship now you can. The Assyrians are gone. You have freedom and to joy to worship and joy to worship. God, I think, is at work in this chapter so that his people can flourish in their exclusive relationship with him. Or to say it another way, God is at work in the world and at work in your life to enable you, his people, to enjoy him supremely. God is at work in your life so that you can know him more fully, love him more dearly, follow him more faithfully. God is at work in in that regard. And in Nahum chapter 1, God does that work by punishing the oppressor, by enacting justice. And with, with Nineveh out of, out of sight here, out of action, the people of Judah can freely enjoy their relationship with God. They can worship him freely, gladly, joyfully, um, uh, exclusively. This illustration might not help too much, but I think you'll appreciate it. Aaron Smith, um, uh, a couple of years ago, there was an article online about Aaron Smith. He was a young man trying to find love, and he was using a lot of online dating apps, and they weren't working very well for him. So he invented his own online dating app. It's called Singularity, and the motto of Singularity is Online Dating Simplified. I don't know if it's still available in the app store, but you could download it and uh, anybody could download it. But all of the women, when they were trying to go through the app, they would only and always match with Aaron Smith. I don't know what, supposed, what direction you're supposed to swipe if you're uh, positive about somebody, but Aaron Smith's picture would come up and you'd swipe no. And you know, the next picture would come up, Aaron Smith wearing a different outfit in a different setting. If you didn't like that picture, swipe again, Aaron Smith. Always and forever, Aaron Smith. He's the only choice. God is at work in the lives of his people to enable them to enjoy him supremely and solely. There's no other gods. There's no other option. There's no other place where you're going to find satisfaction that creators are meant to have before their uh, creatures are meant to have before their creators. 
Do you see God at work in your life to enable you to enjoy him supremely? In Nahum chapter 1, he does this through what? Justice. Justice, enacting justice. God has all kinds of means at his disposal. He uses them in the Bible. We can see it. A passage that I want to take you to just briefly here before we dig into Nahum a little bit more. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1 in Paul's testimony. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, the apostle Paul says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure. Oh, that's a good phrase. You should remember that. Paul writes, I was at a point where I was beyond my ability to endure. If you have a sign at your house or on your desk that says, God will never give you more than you can handle, you should throw it away. <laughs> the Apostle Paul, or, or give it to Paul, he can maybe use it. Uh, he says, no, no, I was in a situation far beyond my ability to endure. In fact, he says, we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we had felt we had received the sentence of death. Paul says, I wanted to die. It was so bad in Asia. I didn't know how I would survive, and I just wanted to die. Look what he says, though, about this. He says, but this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. There's two things to notice, I think, about this passage. Number one, Notice how in Paul's circumstances, he's been to Asia, he's been through Asia, he's gotten out of Asia, and he learned the lessons in Asia that he should have learned, and it's buttoned up here with this slogan, here's the trouble I had, here's the lesson I learned, and here's how I grew from it. And it's a wonderful progression. Some of you haven't made it out of Asia yet, and some of you have been through troubles and you haven't gotten the neat buttoned up lesson yet like the Apostle Paul. But here in this instance, here Paul can say, I went through this experience, here's what God taught me. Some of you hadn't got there yet. You're still stuck in Asia. But notice also from this passage, he says, this happened so that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises from the dead. Even apostles, even apostles need to grow in their understanding of what it means to live in exclusive loyalty to God. If even apostles need to learn that lesson, is there anybody else in the room who needs to learn that lesson? It's a course you might not want to sign up for. Wait till you see the syllabus. But even apostles need to learn. God brings this about, this exclusive loyalty. He works towards this exclusive loyalty in Nahum, by removing the threat of Nineveh. You know about Nineveh. Nineveh was those, the, that wicked, violent people. Uh, Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. They repented under the preaching of Jonah. Jonah, the worst evangelist of all time. Uh, uh, about 150 years before Nineveh, uh, before Nahum prophesied, Jonah went to Nineveh and he said, repent, repent, repent. And people heard his message and repented, but that revival didn't last that long, and Nineveh soon returned to its violent, vicious, oppressive ways. And Nahum came to the people who were being oppressed to comfort them by telling them that God would bring an end to Nineveh, that, that they would be able to worship him wholly and freely and without fear and exclusively again. 
My task for today is to walk through Nahum chapter 1 with you. The first eight verses, as I said, of this psalm, reminding us who God is. That's the emphasis. And then the second half tells us what God does. God speaks to Judah and he speaks to Nineveh. He goes back and forth in those uh, verses telling us about God's work. One more piece to think about, though, before we walk through. This is poetry. You can tell that by uh, how it's laid out. The editors, the translators laid this out. This is Hebrew poetry. It's clear from the wording and the rhythm of it. Some of you in this room love poetry. The majority of you, uh, my guess is, probably don't love poetry. So much of the Old Testament is poetry. I mean, a lot of it. I mean, there's narrative sections, there's law, and then there's poetry, book after book after book after poet of poetry. Some of you wish that the Apostle Paul were alive in, uh, during the days of the Old Testament so that he could have written these prophets because then they'd be easier to understand from Paul. Wish Paul had been around with Jeremiah and he could have straightened Jeremiah out a little bit so that we could read it and understand what Jeremiah is saying. Some of you wish that. Uh, uh, some of you think that uh, uh, poetry is just a clever way to hide the truth. You know, well, somebody translate this into normal English so I can understand it. Billy Collins is a poet, uh, an, an American poet. He wrote a poem a few years ago called Introduction to Poetry. Listen to how, what he said. I ask them to take a poem and hold it up to the light like a color slide or press an ear against its hive. I say, drop a mouse into a poem and watch him probe his way out. Or walk inside the poem's room and feel the walls for a light switch. I want them to water ski across the surface of a poem, waving at the author's name on the shore. But all they want to do is tie the poem to a chair with rope and torture a confession out of it. They begin beating it with a hose to find out what it really means. Why is, why is so much of the, of the Bible in poetry, the Old Testament in poetry? Well, because God wants to reach not just your mind with the truth. He wants to change your heart as well, your affections. Not just the things that you love, uh, not just the things that you think, but also the things that you love and the things that you hate. God is about changing them. And sometimes poetry, with poetry, uh, sometimes the heart understands before the mind does. I'm not telling you to read your Bible thoughtlessly. That's not what I'm saying at all. But sometimes the words of the poetry of the Bible speak to your heart. There's clarity in your heart greater than uh, before clarity in your mind. Look, look at verse 7. Verse 7 of Nahum 1. Just an illustration. The second line, the Lord is good. Then it says, the Lord is a refuge in times of trouble. That's poetry. It's figurative language. It's a metaphor, simile is a comparison using the word like or as, a metaphor is a comparison using a to-be verb, right? So metaphor, what's a metaphor? It's a place to keep your cow. So uh, a metaphor, uh, this, this comparison, some of you will get that later. Okay, so uh, uh, what does this mean? The Lord is a refuge in times of trouble. Put it to me in plain English. Well, he's, he's, He's saying something about the promises that God has made 
to keep his people safe in, in dangerous circumstances. He keeps us safe. God protects and spares his people. And, and you can write about that and think about that and probe that, but uh, your heart understands that before your mind is able to enunciate it, doesn't it? The Lord is a refuge in times of trouble. What this means is any preacher or teacher who's going to take up the poetry of the Bible has a, a, a challenging task, right? I want you to understand with your mind what this says, but I'm also after the transformation the author intends in, <coughs> in your heart. You know what we need? Oh, you know who we need? We really need the Holy Spirit to help us. Who's God? Nahum, tell us who this God of justice is. Let's start by thinking about who God is. Nahum 1, 1 through 8. And there, this passage tells us three things about God. We've talked about some of those basic facts. Number one, the Lord is jealous, avenging, and wrathful. The Lord is jealous, avenging, and wrathful. We've already talked about jealous here, jealousy. God enforces the exclusive loyalty that he is due because he is our creator and because of his covenant relationship with Judah. God, though, when we talk about, he's still struggling with this a little bit, God being jealous. God's not a narcissist. Um, He's the only one who can truly satisfy. He is jealous for our exclusive loyalty because it's for his glory and for our good. When Hosea, the prophet, married Gomer, he knew this would happen. God had told him. Gomer left him, became a prostitute, eventually was so destitute that she was sold into slavery. And Hosea went to the slave market and bought Gomer back. Why? To enforce the exclusive loyalty the exclusive relationship between a husband and wife and God in his mercy as an expression of his jealousy, mercy, his jealousy comes and rescues us from the mess that we have made. God is avenging. Three times it says this in this passage. The Lord is jealous and avenging. He takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes. The word vengeance here is not referring to the fact that God is peevish or God is petulant or God is easily miffed and he's just going to get you back. This word vengeance is associated most often in the Bible with justice. God's not angry for selfish reasons. He is his enemies are the wicked. It's good and right that he has these enemies. He's vengeful. He, he enacts justice. And then he's a God of wrath. He's filled with wrath. He vents his wrath. It's another challenging word. We usually don't associate anger with positive, positive, as a positive force. My only trouble with anger is being, is knowing who to be angry with, when to be angry at them, and how to express my anger. Other than that, I've got it down. God's anger, though, is always right, always controlled, always wise, always measured. And look at verse 3. We're going to have to think about this verse a little bit. The Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. I'm going to read that again because I want it to settle in your mind for just a little bit because we're going to look at another passage of scripture. The Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. If you're one of the God's saints who has been reading through the Bible for 50 years, 
probably verses like this ring bells in your mind. This is a 50-year discipleship program uh, to, to do this. But this, this passage should remind you of another passage in the Bible, one of the most important descriptions about God in all of Scripture, found for us in the book of Exodus back in chapter 34, where we were a little bit ago. I want to read to you the description of God in Exodus 34, 6 and 7, and I want you to compare it to the description of God in verse 3. All right, we're going to see the phrases and trace the phrases. Um, there's a lot more in Exodus 34 than in, in Nahum 1, 3, but here we go. And he passed in front of Moses, that God passed in front of Moses, proclaiming his name. Here it is. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger. Okay, there it is. Slow to anger. Now, notice what follows in Exodus 34 in comparison to Nahum 1.3. In Nahum 1.3, it says, slow to anger, but great in power. Okay, here's what Exodus 34 says. God is slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Aha, now we're back to Nahum 1.3. Do you see that? Slow to anger, Great in power, he doesn't leave the guilty unpunished. Exodus 34, he's slow to anger. Then what? Abounding in love and faithfulness. He uh, uh, forgives wickedness. Why, why did Nahum leave all that intervening part out? I think it's because the emphasis of Nahum is on God's justice, that, that his anger is slow but sure and certain. And he's great in power and, and, and great in his ability to enforce justice. God's slow to anger. Is that good news or bad news? Depends, right? Um, if you are, if your name is Mud and you're a scoundrel, is it good news that God is slow to anger? Oh, how grateful I am for the patience of God. If you are being oppressed and victimized, is it good news that God is slow to anger? Doesn't feel like it sometimes, does it? God, when are you going to do something about this? When are you going to fix this problem? Why are you so slow to anger? Good news and, and, and bad news, but his anger is sure news. The Lord is Jealous, avenging, wrathful. Second thing about God here in this passage, the Lord is powerful. The Lord is powerful. And, and verses three through six, here's his emphasis on nature and God's power over nature. If we were to describe someone as powerful these days, how would we go about doing it? Well, we might talk about uh, that woman. She's very powerful. You should, uh, you should understand how much money she has. She's powerful. Or he, that guy, he's, he's powerful. You, you know how many followers he has on social media? Um, that person is powerful. You know how many people they have working for them? She's so powerful. Um, you, you should know the terrible things she's done, and she's able to cover them up. She's powerful, right? That's how we talk about someone being powerful. How, in this passage, should we talk about God and his power? Remember, this is the pre-industrial age. There's no machines. There's no um, um, uh, electricity. There's no gunpowder. There's no bombs. That, that, this world must have been very quiet, no cars, very quiet. In fact, um, you'd spend most of your day uh, making sounds, hearing sounds that only you or your animals or your family could make. It's a very quiet world. And when a thunderstorm comes, 
This is very loud. Nature here, uh, in particular, nature is power. It's, it's out of control power. It's something that I can't stop and, and I'm the victim of it. Now, what's interesting in our world, the way we talk about nature's power these days, when a terrible storm comes, what do we say about it? We don't say, wow, God, power. What we say instead is, oh no, climate change. We did that. We have no, we have no room for God's power because we're the ones who bring the storms because of our SUVs. Hmm. Well, uh, look at, at God's power here um, over, over nature. Verse 4 um, says, he rebukes the sea and dries it up. It should remind you of the book of Exodus. What does God do? He rebukes the sea and dries it up. You better look out, Assyria, because God did something to the Egyptians that you're going to want to know about. He makes all the rivers run dry. Bashan and Carmel and, and the blossoms of Lebanon, Carmel. He, these are the fertile regions in particular of Judah. He, he dries them up. Mountains quake before him. Now, in the Bible, seas, the seas are a place of chaos and the mountains are a place of stability. There, there is no Israelite navy in the Hebrew scriptures. They don't, they don't have good ports and the sea is a place of chaos. If they want to go to sea, they hire the Phoenicians to go sail for them. So the sea is a dangerous, um, frightening place. Huh. Jonah was so afraid of the Assyrians that he would rather go to sea than to go, see, to, to, go to Nineveh. That, that tells you something. Um, mountains are places of stability. Seas are dangerous places. And you know what? God rules over them all because God makes the mountains quake. Verse 6 no one can withstand him, his great power over nature. Huh. The Assyrians are the biggest bullies on the planet. Do you know what you need if you have a big bully threatening you? A bigger bully, right? How many times has it been done in commercials or television shows? Uh, they, they, they picture this kid in school and, and, uh, and here, here the, his bully comes and he stands over him. And the little kid is cowering, cowering in fear. And the camera focuses in on that, that, that fearful face. And, and all of a sudden that kid breaks into the smile. And the bully says, what are you smiling about? right? And the camera pans back and you see behind the bully is standing the bigger bully, Principal Johnson, right? And, and here he is to enact justice. And that little victim, so happy, so happy. Judah is the cowering victim. Assyria is the bully and God is here, right? Hmm. The Lord is powerful. Then, finally, here, this third thing we learn about God in this psalm, the Lord is good. The Lord is good. Look at verse 7 and 8. The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. But, but, with an overwhelming flood, he will make an end of Nineveh. When I do uh, funerals, and uh, it's for a member of our congregation, someone I know well whose testimony I've heard, and uh, some, we'll have the funeral sometimes in the church, I always begin by quoting John 11. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he be dead, yet shall he live. When I'm called upon to do funerals for situations where I don't know the spiritual history of the family or anything like that, I always begin by quoting Nahum 1.7. The Lord is good, a refuge in trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. And I don't go on to verse 8, which says, but 
with an overwhelming flood, he will make an end of Nineveh. That would not be a blessing under those circumstances. But the contrast, the contrast between verses 7 and 8 is important. It's helpful. It's helpful for us to think about this passage because there's two ways to misread Nahum chapter 1. Two ways to misread this passage. One way to read, misread Nahum 1 is to say, look, God's angry in this passage and God is always angry. There's some of you, this is your life. You struggle with the idea that God is mad at you and that most of the time he's mad at you. This is a picture of Ida Sexton McKinley. Ida Sexton McKinley was the wife of President William McKinley. I think about her every now and then. Uh, when William McKinley met her, she was a young woman. She was vivacious. She was outgoing. She was uh, uh, the, uh, uh, shy, a little bit shy, but still friendly and, and gracious. And he fell in love with her, and they got married. They were both devout believers. A few years after they got married, um, uh, Within a span of a few months, her grandfather, she loved him, her mother and their newborn baby died within a few months of each other. And Ida Sexton McKinley was convinced at this point in time that God was mad at her. And she didn't know why, but God, God is angry with me. And it, it, that conviction transformed her life and she became a, a recluse, a semi-invalid for the rest of her life because God's mad at me. I don't know why, but he's angry at me. They had an older daughter, the McKinleys did, named Kate. She was four or five, a couple years after her younger sister had died. And President McKinley's, uh, he wasn't present at the time, William McKinley's brother came uh, uh, to the house and said, Kate, do you want to go for a walk? And, and Kate said, no, no, I can't go out of the yard or God will punish mama some more. It's just a thought in this woman's life. God is angry at me. God is angry at me. He's mad at me. And this passage, when verse 7 says the Lord is good, this is a reminder to us that God's anger in Nahum chapter 1 is aimed, is, is for the sake of, of justice in defense of his people. It's an expression of his goodness, his jealousy, his wrath is. And, and Nahum chapter 1 verse 7 is this invitation Yes, God is jealous. Yes, God is angry. Yes, God is avenging. But, but, here, come, come to him. He's good. He's a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for all those who trust in him. We, 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 we announce the message, the bad news, that human beings are by nature objects of wrath because of our sin, our rebellion against God. And we rightfully announce the judgment that is to come, that we believe that is still to come. But we also say to people, we issue this invitation, oh, come, come, because the Lord is good and he, you can find refuge in him. Think about what the Lord Jesus said to the city of Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who prosecuted, persecuted the prophets. How often have I gathered, longed to gather you together under my arms as, as a hen gathers together her chicks, but you would not. So come, come, it's the invitation in, in, in this passage of Scripture. There are some people who misread Nahum 1 and say, God is angry, he's always angry, he's angry at me. The other way to misread this passage, though, is to deny what it says and, and not read Nahum and say, this can't possibly be true, God can't possibly be angry, this can't, God is never angry. 
And yet Nahum says, yes, he is towards those who are endlessly cruel. What would you say to a judge? If there was a, a judge who was very proud of his mercy and very proud of how good he was and kind it, because he never sentences anyone to prison. Convict comes, there's a trial. Uh, I know our criminal justice system is not perfect, but let's say convict comes, there's a trial. And he's convicted, this uh, a criminal, is, this man is convicted of the crime and, and a judge says, oh, I never, I'm too good to send anybody to prison. What'd you say to him? You're not as good as you think you are. There's, there, this, this man has hurt people and, and you're not doing anybody any favors by sending him back into the population where he's gonna hurt more people. He needs to be sequestered. He needs to be uh, punished for the, the crime that he's committed. You're not a good judge if you will not sentence those who are cruel to the punishment that they deserve. That's who God is. He's good, he's powerful, he's jealous, he's avenging, he's wrathful. Now let's think secondly here and more briefly about what God does, what God does. That's in Nahum 1, 9 to 15. God simultaneously does two things in this passage. First, he punishes the guilty and he saves his people. He punishes the guilty and he saves his people. Sometimes he saves his people by punishing the guilty. That's what he does here in this passage. And he goes back and forth here talking to Nineveh and to Judah. So we start in verses 9 through 11. He speaks to Nineveh. Whatever they plot against the Lord, he'll bring to an end. Trouble will not come a second time. They will be entangled among thorns and drunk from their wine. In the Bible, to drink something uh, is uh, to uh, suffer God's wrath. Remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, if it's possible, take this cup from me. And it's not possible that Ninevites, you're going to drink the cup that God has for you. They'll be consumed like dry stubble. From you, Nineveh, one has come, has come forth who plots evil against the Lord and devises wicked plans. How good, how well do you think that's going to go? Not well. Verses 12 and 13, though, he speaks to Judah. He goes back to them now. He, he punishes the guilty. He saves his people. Verse 12, this is what the Lord says. Although they have, the Ninevites have allies and are numerous, they will be destroyed and pass away. Although I have afflicted you, Judah, I will afflict you no more. Ha ha. This is worth thinking about. God has used the Assyrians to afflict Judah. Why? Because he's at work to cultivate exclusive loyalty in them to him. But that does not mean that God approves of the Assyrians or God will not hold the Assyrians guiltless for their endless cruelty. God is able to draw straight lines with crooked sticks. and Sometimes he uses crooked people to do his work in our lives. Then in verses 14, and 15, uh, 14, he talks to Nineveh again. The Lord has given a command concerning you, Nineveh. Actually, I think he's speaking to the king of Nineveh here. You will have no descendants to bear your name. I will destroy the images and idols that are in the temple of your gods. I will prepare your grave for you are vile. Um, what's he doing to the king? No dynasty. You're going to have no, nobody's going to sit on the throne after you, uh, king in Nineveh. And uh, your religion is gone. I'm going to destroy it. I'm going to dismantle it. And I'm going to put you in the ground. And then to Judah, this good word again, restoration of this exclusive relationship. Celebrate, verse 15, your festivals and fulfill your vows. Why? Were they afraid to celebrate their festivals? Were they afraid to worship God because of the Assyrians? Maybe. 
Or were they too tempted by the Assyrian gods? They wanted to worship the Assyrian gods instead of uh, God of the Bible. That's possible too. God's going to eradicate them and then there'll be this um, expression of loyalty to him. God is at work to enable his people to enjoy him supremely. God is at work in your life so that you can know him truly, follow him faithfully, love him dearly. Now, verse 15, for you 50-year Bible readers, you probably recognize lines from verse 15. They're also in Isaiah 52 and in Romans 10, 15. Look on the mountains, the feet of one who brings good news. Romans 10, 15 says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Most people don't think feet are beautiful. But here's this promise. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. The news is so good that even their ugly feet uh, are beautiful. In Romans chapter 10, the good news is that the Lord has come, that Jesus has come to save. Remember what God does? He punishes the guilty and saves his people. Well, in the Lord Jesus, when he came the first time, what did he do? He saved his people by what? Being punished for them as if he were the guilty. That's the good news of the cross that we proclaim, that Jesus took our sin upon himself and he was Guilty, he was treated as if he were guilty by God for us so that we might be saved in him. All who believe. God is at work so that his people might flourish in their exclusive relationship with him. God's jealousy, you know what it is? It's good news. It's good news for his glory and for our joy. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and uh, we thank you for your um, kindness to us that this, this truth, the Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for all those who trust in him. Lord, I know there are people in this room and we think about it, brothers and sisters around the world who even more than us know what it is like to be oppressed and victimized by endlessly cruel people vile and wicked people. And we are grateful to you for this truth that you are an avenging and wrathful God, that your enemies deserve the punishment that they receive through your sovereign, powerful hand. You are slow to anger and how grateful we are for you that, that you are slow to anger. But Lord, we confess, we do pray sometimes like the psalmist, how long, O Lord, how long until you bring about justice. Help us, Lord, to remember to put your anger in its place in the Bible and recognize this expression of your goodness to those who take refuge in you. Help us, O Lord. Grant that we might not be distracted by the powers that be in our world and that our, we might know you truly and love you dearly and follow you faithfully. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen.